This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel. Here in the studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. Our top story today is an apparent U-turn by Germany over Ukraine. Throughout the war there, Germany has been no help, despite enormous pressure from other Western nations. It's repeatedly promised to provide help and then given flimsy excuses for not following through. But on Wednesday, Chancellor Olaf Scholz made an announcement that raised hopes in Ukraine and deeply angered Russia. To learn about this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, it looks like Germany said they're going to be sending Leopard to battle tanks after all. This has been the big discussion point for Europe over the last few weeks or so. Uh, we talked about this on last week's show. They had a big meeting in, in uh, the Ramstein Air Base in Germany pretty much this time last week. And most of NATO left in a half because Germany was refusing to send these tanks and then uh, with that announcement, Olaf Schulz reversed course. So what we're looking at here is that Germany would, uh, it had been blocking other countries from sending their Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. They've indicated they're no longer going to do that. And that Germany itself would contribute about a dozen-ish uh, Leopard tanks to this effort. Poland is is kind of the one organizing for the most part this um kind of ring around where they're going around Europe getting people to contribute tanks here and there they're hoping to get together upwards of a hundred Leopard 2 tanks that they can then uh, send on to to Ukraine it seems like you had a couple of factors behind this U-turn one is that as this whole discussion has gone on for a while Germany has thrown up a number of different excuses their latest and greatest excuse was we won't send Leopard tanks unless America sends Abrams tanks. And there are a number of reasons why uh, America has not wanted to send Abrams tanks. America has given a ton of support to Ukraine, sent you know vastly more resources towards Ukraine than Europe has. And their kind of position was, look, with the Abrams tank, it's a very complicated tank. You've then got very long supply lines going all the way back to the United States to get all of these different parts in. There's also all kinds of legal limits as to which Abrams systems are allowed to be ex uh, exported. And um, I don't even know if the Biden administration can, can without Congress, lift those. So there's going to be, it's going to be very complex, America getting the Abrams tank over there. There are a lot of reasons why it wasn't really suitable for this task. Uh, but um, Germany's statement of we're not going to do this without the Abrams, it seems like basically America bounced Germany into it, that they turned around and said, fine, we're sending Abrams. And that kind of left Schultz without excuse, without any excuse. The other factor behind this was his own coalition partners. So he's ruling in a coalition with uh, there's himself and then uh, his, his social Democrats. Then you've got the Free Democratic Party and then you've got the Green Party. And he was coming under attack, pretty heavy attack, from both of his coalition partners. You had the uh, Free Democrats defense spokesman 
calling the SDP's parliamentary leader a Putin stooge. So the different parts of the coalition are calling each other's names in public. Annalena Baerbock, the foreign minister, who's the Green Party leader, had said, yes, we will send tanks to Poland. Schultz says, no, we won't. Uh, basically, it seems like if Schultz hadn't have had that turnaround after America made that decision with the Abrams tanks, his whole government could well have fallen apart. The uh, Euro Intelligence write, wrote, writes that had he said no to tank deliveries, Baerbock would almost surely have resigned and brought down the coalition with her. So... It looks like Schultz reversed course because he had no choice. Thanks to that combination of America and the internal politics within Germany, he had to do it or lose his job. So we've been talking about how Schultz has been viewed as quite pro-Russia and even last week in installing a new uh, defense minister who is pro-Russia. Russia, we'll talk with uh, Jeremiah about this uh, shortly, but it certainly seems to be taking this seriously. How much are you viewing this as a, a genuine about-face? Because it seems like there are a lot of people that are saying this really reflects weakness on Schultz's part more than anything else. Yeah, I don't think it is a genuine about-face. Uh, that seems pretty unlikely. I think there's just a lot of ways that Russia could hurt Germany if they really wanted to. And uh, it would seem completely out of character with Schultz. I think it shows how rocky Schultz's position is, how easily the German government could fall. Uh, and that Ukraine is not going to say thank you very much. And that's all we wanted on these tanks. They're going to be pushing for another round of tanks. They're going to be pushing for advanced fighter jets. Schultz is going to be in this position again, and it could bring down his government. So I think it underlines his weakness. And I think Euro intelligence just really analyzed this very well. That that Germany hasn't Germany has come out of this with everyone kind of uh, criticizing them. They still yeah. don't. They still uh, don't look great. The they write that the Americans are furious at having been blackmailed into sending a M1 Abrams tanks. Uh, they say that the Poles and Ukrainians quote suspect Germany of hidden agendas. So even despite this reluctant kind of being forced to change course. Uh, it doesn't look like it doesn't look like anything has really changed i don't think and we've been here before we've had several times where germany says that they, they make some big announcement schultz looks like he caves into the pressure he turns around he says well what do you mean us being pro pro russia he announces something big and then quietly two three weeks later you get the details and it turns out the tanks aren't going to be delivered until 2025 or they'll be delivered but without turrets or they'll deliver the tanks, but no ammunition. Uh, it's those kind of things that we've seen again and again from Germany. I thought what Euro Intelligence wrote is uh, just very insightful. Even it's the same that we were writing before the tanks were delivered, but but even afterwards, they said our own best explanation is a hidden agenda, a game plan to reestablish relations with Russia as soon as possible. And it talks about all the people around Schultz that are very pro-Putin. It talks about how build Germany's largest newspaper. They tried to explain what Putin was doing, um, but then they had to admit that none of this, uh, sorry, what Schultz was doing, but they had to admit that none of it added up. Uh, I thought they made this really interesting point. Schultz is very close to BASF and other German companies that have invested in Russia and that rely on Russian imports. Uh, and it talks about uh, some of his behavior. It says, this tells us that Schultz's priority right now is to reestablish relations with Russia after the war. This is also telling us that Germany does not seek a Ukrainian victory. Yeah. So he's still doing all that he can 
to to back Russia. And uh, yeah, this is what Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Florius said right from the start of the crisis and even going back years and years and years. Uh, we read some of the quotes on the show last week from Herbert W. Armstrong saying that, well, once Germany's ready, they'll start forming these relationships with Russia. It's what Germany does throughout history. And uh, the Bible, Bible prophecy certainly indicates you've got some strong links with Russia. You know, these two countries have... Um, well, Germany has a, a resentment against the United States. Ultimately, it's hiding it. It's going to work to bring her down the United States. Bible prophecy talks about that. And working with Russia is the best way to do it. They're in a tough situation right now because they're also working to lead the European Union. And leading the European Union means leading a whole bunch of countries that wants Germany to stand up to Russia. So, yeah, they're in a bind. They are working to look like Poland can trust them and that France can trust them while at the same time trying to maintain this relationship with Russia. And they're having all kinds of trouble trying themselves into contortion uh, doing this. But ultimately, they have this, this hidden agenda. And even some of the world's best experts can see that. And I thought it was interesting. He pointed to the business leaders mm -hmm. are the ones that are really helping to push this agenda. That's an angle that Mr. Flurry is really focused on, that you look at just the history that Herbert W. Armstrong covered, where after World War II, uh, a lot of Germany's business leaders that supported the Nazis uh, went underground, promised to help continue this ideology and help it rise back up again. And now you see these business leaders, in some cases, the leaders of the same businesses that backed the Nazis, now pushing Russia, uh, Germany into bed with Russia. Uh, you've got this nation with a simmering, simmering resentment of the United States coming up from the underground and quietly working with Russia against the rest of the West, really. That uh, article that you're referencing from Mr. Fleury, Rising from the German Underground, that was our cover story in the March 2022 trumpet, where he was talking about just how much power these industrialists within Germany have. And it is interesting that uh, you have these analysts that are looking at Germany actually promising to send these tanks into Ukraine as putting all of the pieces together. They see uh, evidence, basically, of this kind of collusion between between Germany and Russia. And as you said, Germany has made promises and uh, reneged on them many times in the past. We, we'll see what happens here. But the evidence of what Gerald Flurry has been saying about this German-Russian relationship just grows uh, more evident all the time. We will put a few articles up on the show notes uh, on this segment. We have uh, two articles about Germany being pressured to send these uh, tanks, and uh, one by Josue Michel's a longer article, Germany Pursues a Hidden Agenda with Russia, as well as that cover story of uh, Gerald Fleury rising from the German underground. Thank you, Mr. Palmer. We'll just look closer now at Russia's response to this move by Germany. For this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, Russia seems to be taking this at face value. Uh, they think that the leopards have been freed and they'll soon be prowling battlefields in Ukraine along with USM-1 Abrams and uh, other main battle tanks. And the Russians are, you know, understandably upset. One of Russian President Vladimir Putin's big goals with this war was to expose how fractured NATO had become. And another one was to expose how unreliable America 
had become as a security partner. And up until this point, at least in the broad strokes, he has really accomplished kind of the opposite of those goals. So he's fuming. Yesterday, in response to the news about all these tanks, Russia launched a new wave of missiles and Iranian drones at Ukraine. There were 59 missiles and 39 drone strikes. These went toward uh, civilian targets, which is now the norm for the Russian terrorist state. Most of them were intercepted since Ukraine has increasingly advanced um, you know, defense systems coming in from the West all the time. 47 of the missiles were shot down and apparently all of the drones. But some of these missiles always punch through the defenses, and the ones that got through this week killed at least 11 people and wounded the same number. And then the missiles also did more damage to Ukraine's already very battered energy infrastructure, which is especially painful to Ukraine during these cold months. And then as far as government statements go, Russia sent kind of a mixed bag. On one hand, they've said... You know, these tanks are irrelevant. We'll destroy them all, no problem. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, Russia said it sees this as evidence of direct and growing U.S. and European involvement in the conflict. There was a statement from Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov. He said, European capitals and Washington constantly give statements that sending various types of weapons, including tanks, in no way means their involvement in the hostilities. We strongly disagree with this. In Moscow, this is perceived as direct involvement in the conflict, and we see that this is growing. End quote. And then Russia's representative to the OSCE and other politicians as well are saying this puts us on the way to full-scale war in Europe. And then Russian state TV took all of this a big step further by actually calling for a nuclear strike on Berlin as a result of all this. So, you know, despite some face-saving comments, this has clearly shaken the Russians, and I think that we have yet to see the full extent of their response. It does seem like the we've talked for quite a long time that there's a certain inevitability about Russia's eventual triumph in this war and that basically Western nations that are supplying Ukraine these kinds of armaments are are essentially delaying the inevitable. What's your view uh, in light of this kind these kinds of guarantees or promises from Western nations? Yeah, I think that's a that's a definite factor, although we are also, you know, uh, really reducing Russian military power in the process. This has been almost a year mm. of Russia being whittled down quite a bit without without the U.S. losing any soldiers at all in the process. But um, but yes, even still, Ukraine remains wildly outmanned by Russia. Um, Russia had a pre-war population of 144 million people versus Ukraine's around 40 million. And Russia, as we discussed last week, has no qualms at all about throwing bodies at almost limitless numbers into the fray in order to overwhelm Ukraine. Um, Russia started out with about 190,000 troops, and then there was the first stage mobilization of 300,000 more. And now Russia has a second stage mobilization of 500,000 troops in the works. So half a million more Russian soldiers will soon be on the battlefields. And that's, you know, that's an eye-popping number. Ukraine has been inflicting casualties, as near as we can tell, on Russia at rates of about three to one, and sometimes even higher, more than three Russians killed or injured for every Ukrainian killed or injured. So that sounds good for Ukraine, but it's not enough. If the war continues on for long enough, three Russian casualties for every Ukrainian will eventually mean a Russian victory 
in the war. Military analysts believe that Ukraine actually needs something closer to five to one in order to prevail. So the Ukrainians, you know, they're better trained, they're better armed, they have better morale. All of that matters, but the sheer number of troops also matters a great deal. And it's hard to see how, especially with just the negligible value that the Russians place on human life, um, and with another half million troops soon entering the battlefield, it's hard to see how Ukraine could defend itself for many more months, even with these new tanks and other heavy weapons from the West. We were talking earlier, you were describing uh, how the uh, unusually warm winter in Ukraine has actually worked against Ukrainian forces. Can you explain that? Yes. Yeah. You know, right now, what Ukraine really needs in order to further offset Russia's superior numbers is mobility. They need to be able to move when the Russians can't. And they, they actually have accomplished a lot of this with the Kerch Strait Bridge that was taken out. That rail line was Russia's main resupply for the southern front. So destroying that really reduced Russia's mobility a great deal. And then Ukraine has also been systematically targeting Russia's fleet of resupply trucks. The best counts show that Russia started the war 11 months ago with a fleet of 3,000 resupply trucks. And now they're down to about 500 from what we can tell. And so all of that has really reduced Russia's ability to move troops and arms around, but it's not enough. You know, to get up to that five to one casualty rate, the Ukrainians need to be able to maneuver into all kinds of positions that the Russians cannot reach and then use those positions to further destroy Russian resupply. And the weather right now is making this very hard. The, uh, The seasons in Ukraine are, well, currently you've got winter when the ground is usually frozen hard, and then summer when the ground is hard and dry, and then spring and fall are the mud seasons. It's wet, but it's not cold enough to freeze. So whether you're on foot or in a car or tank, mobility is, you know, it's arduous and it's very constrained. So right now during winter, this should be the time when Ukraine has superior mobility and uses that to outmaneuver Russia. But the weather has been just bizarrely warm for several weeks. And that means the mud season has just gone on and on. And that has kind of erased what should have been an advantage for Ukraine. Um, that, that's one of the big reasons why we saw the Ukrainian counteroffensive slow down and then stop a couple of months ago. And the uh, geopolitical strategist Peter Zion, he spoke about this this week. He said, soon the Russians will be able to throw those extra half a million men and just come at the Ukrainians from multiple angles. And if they do enough with enough, then it really doesn't matter if the Ukrainians are mobile. They'll be overwhelmed. And that could be the end of the war right there. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. If you want more information about uh, the prophetic implications of what's happening here, and particularly how prophecy indicates that Russia will prevail in this conflict, read our booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. We'll make that available in the show notes. You can see it in our literature library as well. If your opinion of Pfizer and Big Pharma wasn't low enough already, this week brought some jaw-dropping revelations of terrible corruption. For this story, we'll turn to Andrew Miller. Yeah, the Twitter files are the gift that keeps on giving. Matt Taibbi's teasing that we're probably going to get another dump of Twitter files today, uh, exposing some more Trump-Russia 
collusion information. But in the meantime, we're still processing all this information from Twitter Files Part 16 on Big Pharma's disinformation campaign. Uh, specifically, that batch of information, that batch was released by Lee Fang, uh, shows that these, uh, these huge pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, uh, BioNTech, uh, and, um, and predominantly Pfizer, were lobbying the Biden administration to crush any efforts to share patent IP for new COVID-related medicine. Basically, they didn't want any <laughs> uh, cheaper or alternative treatments for the COVID disease than the vaccines these three, three big companies primarily were producing. Uh, these same Twitter files bats also shows that these same companies, in addition to working with big government to crush the competition, were lobbying Twitter directly, not even through the FBI, but directly to censor information critical of their vaccines or promoting alternative treatments. So uh, here you've got one of our best glimpses yet of this uh, this collusion between big government, big pharma, and big tech to manufacture a vaccine, have big pharma manufacture a vaccine, have big government pressure everyone in America to take the vaccine, uh, have big government work to crush any competitors to the vaccine, and then have big tech and big media uh, tell <laughs> uh, tell the the world how wonderful the vaccine is, while censoring any any information critical of it. So it's this huge media government campaign, basically, to uh, to sell MNR vaccines and make uh, huge amounts huge amounts of money. Yeah, and uh, there was another revelation this week that also exposed this uh, this determination on the part of these companies at whatever cost to society to make huge amounts of money. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was some, some amazing timing because this second story has nothing to do with the Twitter files other than Pfizer's also involved. Uh, but James O'Keefe, uh, he's an investigative journalist, runs a organization called Project Veritas, uh, which basically does hidden camera interviews. Uh, you you find someone in government or media or pharmaceuticals, uh, take them out to dinner, ask them some candid questions, and they don't know they're being filmed. Well, <laughs> this, uh, this week, Project Veritas released a video with Pfizer executive Jordan Tristan Walker. Um, uh, he's a director of research and development and strategic operations at Pfizer. And uh, on this candid camera, I mean, he was saying some shocking things. He's basically saying that Pfizer is deliberately mutating COVID viruses via directed evolution so that the company can continue developing vaccines <laughs> for these COVID variants uh, and then continue making money. Uh, money off the vaccine. He he deliberately called it a cash cow. Here I've got I've got three of his more shocking statements <laughs> in this interview. Uh, here's the first one. It says said uh, this is an actual quote from Jordan Christian Walker. 
It says, one of the things we're exploring is like, we don't know, we just mutate COVID ourselves so that we could create preemptively developed new vaccines, right? We have to do that. Uh, if we're going to go through that, there's a risk to life. So you could imagine no one wants a pharmaceutical company mutating viruses. And then a little later, he says, don't tell anyone. Promise you won't tell anyone. Uh, the way it exper the experiment would work is that we put the virus in monkeys and we successfully cause them to keep infecting each other and we collect serial samples from them. And then uh, a little later on, he goes, part of what the Pfizer scientists want to do is to some extent to figure this out. Uh, how there are all these strains and variants that just pop up. So it's like we're trying to catch them before they pop up and we can't develop a vaccine for new variants. So that's why we do controlled lab and they say this is a new epitope. So some of, the, some of those quotes aren't necessarily very, <laughs> uh, very eloquent because he's freeballing during a dinner. But he's basically saying this, that we're, they're deliberately talking about uh, infecting monkeys with strands of virus. Let the virus mutate within the monkey. Infect another monkey. Uh, keep going. So you now have not just one strand of COVID-19, but several strands of COVID-19. Uh, you develop vaccines for all of them. That way, <laughs> according to his reasoning, as the virus mutates, naturally in the world they preemptively have a virus ready at the get-go for <laughs> for every variant but he even admits in the interview that that's probably what wuhan was doing when the virus escaped uh-huh and so they they were mutating viruses developing vaccines for them preemptively and then in a, a very tragic self-fulfilling prophecy the the virus escaped and created the pandemic that made them all the money. If you if you have a little bit of a conspiracy theorist bent, it wouldn't be a even that outlandish to say that like the virus was leaked <laughs> to make that type of money. Because I mean that's how it's worked out. They're preemptively creating viruses. Uh, one of them <laughs> escaped. They've made billions and billions of dollars on it. And instead of learning their lesson. Uh, now, instead of just doing this in Wuhan, Pfizer's doing it here in the United States crazy. as well. It, the, the, the numbers of how much money these companies have made uh, is obscene. Uh, and this guy just saying that essentially COVID is uh, this never-ending cash cow for our companies. Uh, he's basically saying what, what we already knew, but the, the level that these uh, people are willing to stoop to uh, to, uh, to pursue these kinds of, of profits really is beneath what, what we even realized before this point. Right, because we have two, two features we can probably put in the show notes today. One is a feature story from last year uh, that, that I wrote called Running on COVID Money that goes through some of the statistics of um, just how much money these companies are making off this type of unethical behavior. Uh, and then we also have the Appendix C from America Under Attack by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, entitled, Was the Coronavirus Engineered? Uh, that shows uh, n not so much about the bioengineering projects Pfizer was doing, but similar bioengineering projects that Wuhan was doing when this virus was created. Um, and then both those resources, America Under Attack and that uh, running on COVID money, uh, do tie that back to um, uh, a prophecy in Daniel 8 about an end time uh, Antiochus who casts truth to the ground, specifically focusing on how this Antiochus is empowered by 
uh, a host of people, <laughs> like a deep state of people. And, and those who study the deep state know that uh, even though it's primarily centered in Washington, D.C., uh, Wall Street and Silicon Valley are two important nodes of the deep state. And that's really what this story about is that Washington, D.C., Silicon Valley, uh, and then all these big pharmaceutical companies working together in a way that enriches themselves by fundamentally transforming uh, the nation. Because none of, none of the, what we're talking about today is democratic or constitutional. Uh, it's all this uh, exposing this huge uh, technocratic oligarchy that runs America uh, in a way <laughs> that's designed to uh, hurt people in order to uh, benefit themselves. Well, very good. We will link to those uh, resources in the show notes. Thanks for that, Mr. Miller. To Israel now, Israeli Defense Forces raided a Palestinian camp in the West Bank yesterday. To learn about this, we'll turn to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, so on Thursday, there was a joint operation between the IDF, Sheen Beit, which is Israel's domestic uh, secret service, and Israeli police on the West Bank refugee camp at Jenin. Now, the Israeli government claimed that it had knowledge of a terror cell there planning significant terror attacks on Israelis, and the second goal was to capture three militants located in the camp that were affiliated with the terror group Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, for those that remember, uh, last summer there was a brief spat of fighting between the Israeli government and Gaza. Palestinian Islamic Jihad was the main terror group involved in that. It was even I mean, Israel goes into the West Bank to conduct these kinds of raids all the time, but even by those standards, this was a pretty interesting bat battle to say the least. It was a, a three-hour-long shootout. Um, nine Palestinians died, including two of the terrorists that uh, the Israeli forces were looking for. The third one surrendered. But um, it's not so much a, as big as this battle may have been. It's not so much what happened in the battle itself that's particularly noteworthy it's the palestinian response now uh, as many of our listeners I'm, I'm sure know the west bank is divided into different zones of uh, control the israelis control some parts and the palestinian authority which is a de facto government controls other parts and that's headquartered in the city of ramallah and the Palestinian Authority president, Mahmoud Abbas, well, he, he did two things that are interesting. First off, he declared three days of mourning for the Palestinians that were killed. Now, obviously, he's not supposed to like this kind of stuff happening, but two of the people that were killed were militant terrorists, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Technically, Abbas belongs to the Fatah faction, which is more secular socialist leaning. And the international community likes to paint them as the more moderate, um, let's get together two state solution group. And here he is holding days of mourning for two jihadis, uh, which goes to show, yes, Fatah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad will throw Hamas into the mix too. They might stand for different things. They may have different worldviews per se, but they obviously like each other enough to mourn when 
the, uh, the other side loses a battle. And what's the one battle they're all fighting? They're all fighting against Israel. So this shows a little bit of, say, Abbas's and Fatah's lack of moderation, so to speak, surfacing. They're siding with the jihadis in this uh, case. And the more significant thing that happened was Abbas decided that the Palestinian Authority will no longer coordinate with uh, Israel for security concerns. Now, if you go back to the 1990s, the Oslo Accords, when the Palestinian Authority was established, part of the deal was, in order to placate Israeli security concerns, uh, Ramallah and Jerusalem would do some coordinating regarding knowledge of terror activity and, and that sort of thing. And Abbas is saying, yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Hmm. They did this once before in 2020. They backtracked a few months later. So we'll see if this holds out. But considering, especially this is the same, the day of, he didn't really take that much time to, you know, consult his partners or see what the international community thinks. He basically did this almost immediately. Shows him, uh, I mean, Abbas is a bit notorious for this kind of uh, fickle uh, flip-flopping between trying to reach out to Israel and being a hardliner, but it goes to show he's starting to dig his feet into the ground. You uh, have to view this in the context of the the changeover in Israeli government with Netanyahu in power and as strong as his position is, uh, he really has... Uh, has uh, dug in on his side against this kind of thing. And you, you have to think that the Palestinians recognize uh, that they're not going to uh, be able to get uh, any forward movement on their side uh, the way that they've been doing things. It seems like they're, you have this kind of entrenchment on both sides. Very much so. We've talked recently on this program about some of the moves Netanyahu's new government has been doing, like the uh, uh, the banning of Palestinian flags, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all within just you know, a few weeks of the new government uh, getting established in Jerusalem. Perhaps, I mean, Abbas has worked with Netanyahu for years before, of course. They don't necessarily like each other, but perhaps he was waiting this long to try and feel the waters, see... Uh, see what he has to do and looks like he's making his move right now and it's uh, in a similar hardline position uh, the Israelis aren't backing down so Abbas is saying I'm not going to back down either and uh, especially with this current political situation we're seeing more and more Jerusalem and Ramallah get to more loggerheads with each other and in as, as with anything in the West Bank or in Middle Eastern politics in general when two sides start to do that usually you could expect an escalation of not just say uh, spat uh, diplomatic spats or or tit for tat uh, economic punishments or that kind of thing you can expect bullets to be flying you can expect bombs to be going off you could expect even without government coordination lone wolf terrorists um, deciding they're going to take matters into their own hands and cause mayhem in public areas so again We'll see how this goes. Abbas tried to uh, withdraw security cooperation one time before, and he backtracked soon after. But um, it doesn't look like the situation is going to get pretty anytime soon. Violence in Jerusalem is something we watch closely because of the indications in prophecy that this will be a trigger for end-time events. 
Well, the go-to prophecy that we've covered on this program before, of course, is Zechariah 14, verses 1 to 2 specifically. That uh, prophecy discusses a series of events that will culminate in the return of Jesus Christ, but it lists those events backwards. And the starting event, the event that's listed last uh, in the order, but first in time sequence, is half of Jerusalem going into captivity. Now, this prophecy could not have been fulfilled uh, in certain parts of the last century, Israel only controlled half of Jeru uh, Jerusalem. They didn't control the western half, so the Israelis had to get control of the whole city for this whole for this prophecy to be fulfilled. And who wants East Jerusalem? Who wants to put it into captivity, so to speak? Well, the biggest uh, people involved in that, you could say, are, are the Palestinian Arabs. And they've been trying for a long time to get control of Jerusalem, to get control of their holy sites, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. They've tried negotiations. They've tried international pressure campaigns. None of this is working. And the prophecy says eventually the Palestinians are going to say, okay, we're tired of playing this game. We're going to take what we think is ours. We don't care what uh, you do about it. We're right. You're wrong. And that's that. And we're starting to see this kind of mentality, this realization that in the Palestinians that if they were going to get Jerusalem, they're going to have to take uh, up arms for it. And again, the security cooperation that's established in the Oslo Accords, which was supposed to be a framework for a peace deal. So with the Palestinians withdrawing their security cooperation, you could almost say they're withdrawing from the peace process in and of itself. Um, and they've never really as as I mentioned before, with Abbas siding with jih jihadi groups and that kind of thing, they never really wanted peace per se, but they were willing to play along at, to this point if they thought they could get what they want. And they're seeing the peace process isn't getting what, they're, what they want, so they're using other options now. We have an article by Brad McDonald and Brent Noctegall. Is the fall of East Jerusalem imminent from our August 2021 trumpet print edition that we will link to in the show notes if you want more information about the prophecy that uh, Mr. Zekic was talking about there. Thank you very much for that. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, terrorist attacks in Spain and Germany. Iran working to establish a presence in the Panama Canal. China strengthening its ties with Latin America. And another bombshell revelation about FBI corruption. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. After two Iranian-linked terrorist attacks last week were thwarted, this week terrorists were successful in two attacks in Europe, ratcheting up tensions between Iran and Europe all the more. To learn about this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer. Yes, a man with a machete entered two churches in the Spanish port city of Algeracas on January 20, uh, 25th. He killed one person and injured four others. He was a Moroccan citizen who has been was in Spain illegally and uh, shouted Alu Akbar uh, during the attack. And he appeared to specifically have targeted clergymen. 
On the same day, you had a Palestinian refugee from Gaza stabbing seven passengers on a train in Germany, injuring five and killing two. You also had January 15th in northern Nigeria. A Catholic priest was burned to death. Uh, Like you alluded to in that introduction, January 11th, a man stabbed and wounded six people at a Paris train station during rush hour. And uh, as we've talked about on this show, we've had a couple of uh, attacks potentially using weapons of mass destruction linked to Iran that have been thwarted in recent weeks. So it really does look like there's a uh, an uptick in some of these attacks. You can certainly see how these are targeted, not just at Europe, but specifically at Europe's Christian heritage, the Catholic Church, with this uh, attack going after clergymen. Uh, and uh, that's something that I think you know, these are quote-unquote low-level attacks. It's a man with a knife rather than a gun or a, or, or a bomb. But they're also attacks that are very hard to stop and, it, and, and hard to deal with. Would you mind talking about this um, article that we had up on the website by Josue Michel's Iran blackmails the EU and threatens to block oil shipments? It seems the tensions between these two are really reaching new heights. That's right. I think we're reaching a new stage with all of these attacks in Iranian-European relationship, and we're seeing it in a host of different ways. Of course, some of these recent terrorist attacks, you know, like the Palestinian, like the man from Morocco uh, in, in Spain, they're not, say, directly linked to Iran. But like we've talked about for years, Iran really is the, the, the head of radical Islam. It's the, the kind of the standard bearer for that. It sponsors radical Islamist groups all around the world. Uh, we talked a few weeks on this show about how Germany had a p- pretty tolerant relationship with Iran and Hezbollah. That seems to be changing, where kind of Iran let uh, Germany let Iran do whatever they wanted in German territory, as long as Iran didn't plot any actual attacks within Europe from there. Uh, now that that seems to have completely broken down. So on January 19th, the European Parliament called for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to be classified as a terrorist organization. Uh, European leaders did not follow through on that on January 23rd, uh, but they did uh, put more sanctions on Iran, and they did, uh, uh, you know, kind of, kind of compliment, uh, compromise with that. Iran was not at all happy about that, so they uh, came out and said that, well, they threatened that they could cut off oil supplies. Uh, with a bit of uh, blackmail there, talking about oil shipments, which caught our attention, really, because all the way back in 2011, Mr. Flurry, Trump Secretary Gerald Flurry, wrote, radical Islam could stop the flow of essential oil to the United States. So the relationship here is exactly the relationship that we've been expecting between these two countries. It's exactly the relationship that you would expect based on the key Bible prophecy about these two countries in Daniel chapter 11, where you have a European king of the north led by Germany, an Islamic king of the south led by Iran. And it talks about this king of the south pushing at the king of the north, being aggressive, provoking them, carrying out these kind of attacks. Mr. Flurry speculated some of that provocation could could involve oil. Certainly a lot of that provocation will revolve around Jerusalem, like we heard from from Hilo in the first half. and so they're provoking, and then we're going to see a response. We see that that response is going to be really dramatic. Daniel 11 talks about Europe coming at, at this Iranian power like a whirlwind. But we see this, this cycle of provocation and response unfolding already uh, in the news today. 
Well, thank you very much for that. We'll link to uh, a few articles that we have on the website on this subject. And uh, we'll, we'll move on now how Iran seems intent on provoking more than just Europe. The commander of Iran's Navy recently announced that his nation is working to establish a presence in the Panama Canal. For this, we'll go back to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, the Washington Free Beacon had an interview with an anonymous United States State Department official on Tuesday who told the Free Beacon that the State Department is watching for Iranian activity to enter the Panama Canal or them to have a naval presence in the Panama Canal. And this was in response to, as you said, uh, statements from the Navy. And meanwhile, with that, according to per the Brazilian government, Brazil has allowed two Iranian warships including one equipped with anti-ship cruise missiles, torpedoes, and naval cannons to dock in Brazil. The U.S. government expects these two ships to be sailing towards the Panama Canal with a stopover in Iran's friend Venezuela. They, uh, the State Department official declined to say what the U.S. government would do in response for that. But uh, you think about it, Iran's this pariah state in the Middle East. America has troops all over surrounding it and Iraq and Syria and the Persian Gulf. It's this military superpower, and it's the pariah state that's poking at America's backyard, at the Panama Canal. This piece of infrastructure that's critical for world trade, for American trade specifically, for the U.S. Navy to journey from the Atlantic to the Pacific with ease. And Rand will not be doing this if they thought they couldn't get away with it. You think back to when President Trump took out. Uh, the Iran super general Qasem Soleimani, um, if they thought they'd get a response like that from Washington, they wouldn't be uh, doing these kinds of provocations. So, A, this shows how weak America is in Iran's eyes, but also how bold they are in tampering with something that's on the other side of the world. It's so critical for American security. We talk a lot about the uh, Iranian provocation of Europe, which is specifically prophesied in the Bible. Iran provoking the United States is not. How, how do you view what's happening here prophetically? Well, the, the main emphasis is not so much on Iran, but the Panama Canal itself. I mean, obviously, Iran's not a friend of the United States and hasn't been since the 1979 revolution. But Iran still sees, uh, with its decades-long unofficial war with America, They've been trying to find ways to hit at America without causing an invasion of Iran. And the fact that, again, they're able to go and tamper in all places Latin America and something as critical as the Panama Canal, which you would think if the U.S. had any backbone, they'd snuff out any possibility of enemies tampering with that in the first place. They do that very fast. But Iran's doing it because they could get away with it. And we, the Bible prophesies of not Iran per se, but other enemies taking advantage of that and using the Panama Canal to attack America. Uh, there's a prophecy in Deuteronomy 28.52 about America being besieged in all its gates or being cut off from world trade. Our editor-in-chief has talked about China specifically taking advantage of that and uh, using the Panama Canal to cut America off of world trade. And his booklet, China's Dangerous Move Against America, goes into more detail about that. All right, we'll link to that in the show notes, and that segues perfectly into our next story. Thank you very much, Mr. Zekic. Well, Iran threatens America to itself. China also made moves this week 
to uh, strengthen its presence in Latin America. To learn about this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques. Yes, it was on Tuesday that Chinese President Xi Jinping delivered an address at the seventh summit of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States. <clears throat> this was a video address, and she spoke at great length about the importance of these Latin American and Caribbean nations in global governance, just kind of inflating their egos there. He also talked about China's desire for these nations to integrate more closely with each other. And of course, he emphasized that China wants to draw closer to all these nations as well, which is really code for turning them into even more vehemently anti-American countries than they already are. So we know that China has already established just profound influence in Latin America and the Caribbean. There was a report uh, published recently by the Center for a Secure Free Society showing that China now controls 40 ports in Latin America and 11 satellite ground stations. So this is just an alarming level of presence and influence that the Chinese have already bought for themselves in this region. And if the wishes that Chairman Xi expressed during this speech are realized, then the Chinese will continue to just build on that and further deepen it. So we heard a little bit from Mihailo about China's designs on um, controlling Panama Canal. Maybe you can just put this in its uh, prophetic context and the larger uh, geopolitical uh, goals that China has down there. Sure, yeah. This is really a huge part of what makes this an important story, because China is establishing more and more control over the whole region, um, and that includes those parts of the Caribbean that America relies on a great deal for shipping and receiving of all kinds of critical commodities. Um, We know that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela are of particular interest to the Chinese. That's where a lot of China's efforts have been focused, and that is deeply worrying to the United States. Geopolitical Futures founder George Friedman warned recently that China's influence, especially in Cuba, means that the Chinese could potentially block some of America's most important ports and shipping lanes. I'll just read this uh, quote from him really quickly. It says, The choke points are the waters between Cuba and the Yucatan Peninsula and between Cuba and Florida. The port of New Orleans and the port of Houston depend on these two outlets to ship and receive critical commodities for the United States. And then, uh, skipping down a little, he writes, From Cuba, a long-term threat could be maintained by China. So, you know, just a very worrying possibility there when you consider especially how much America depends on those shipping lanes. Where would you send people to uh, learn about this uh, in prophecy? I think that what Mahilo just mentioned there, the the booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. um, China's Dangerous Move Against America. That's one. That would be a very important one. And then we also have an article on thetrumpet.com. It's called Preparing to Storm America's Castle that takes a bit of a broader view, not focusing specifically on the Panama Canal, but showing just how vulnerable the U.S. is um, in the Yucatan Peninsula and the other places places mentioned there all right marvelous thank you very much mr jacques one final story another bombshell about fbi corruption we learned this week that the fbi official who was investigating donald trump's ties to russia himself had illegal ties to russia for this we'll go back to andrew miller yeah you really can't make this stuff up but on january 21st former federal bureau of investigation agent charles mcgonagall was arrested for ties with Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Now, uh, this this particular Russian uh, oligarch's been qu- 
quite active in U.S. business dealings. He's actually currently under U.S. sanction for his role in the 2014 annexation of Crimea. So no one's supposed to be doing business with him. Yeah, uh, uh, McGonagall and, uh, and another corporate interpreter were... Uh, we're trying to do a, a conspiracy to commit l money laundering with this official as the official charge uh, they were levied against them when they were arrested, which makes it just so uh, ironic. I mean, he's still <laughs> we'll still see whether he uh, how severe the court ruling against him is. But this particular FBI agent um, was the former head of counterintelligence at the FBI field office in New York that uh, really spearheaded uh, the allegations that Trump was colluding, Donald Trump was colluding with Russia to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. And so now you have the lead investigator, or one of the lead investigators in the Trump-Russia collusion scandal, uh, now here several months after Trump was cleared of all charges, uh, has basically been arrested for the same things he was trying to frame Donald Trump for. Mm -hmm. And so just a huge uh, allegation of hypocrisy here, which comes right on uh, the heels of another story. This story actually happened on January 16th uh, involving former Defense Agency Deputy Director Doug Weiss, who admitted to the Australian newspaper on January 16th that he always knew a significant portion of the Hunter Biden laptop scandal had to be real. And again, that's interesting because he's one of the 51 intelligence agents who signed a letter affirming the American people that the Hunter Biden laptop scandal was Russian disinformation. So that, that that's not so much a hypocrisy source story like the first one was mm -hmm. as it is a story of just like blatant bald-faced lying but but the basic point is that america's intelligence community always knew that trump was innocent of russia collusion and they always knew that hunter biden was guilty of russia collusion uh let they lied about the hunter biden story and tried to frame donald trump while several of their own people, uh, including this McGonagall guy, were actually colluding with Russia themselves. So it just does show how how deep the, the rot exposed in uh, that booklet, America Under Attack, is and how bitter the affliction prophesied in Second Kings 14 has become. Well, we do have articles on each of these stories. FBI official who investigated Trump ties to Russia, arrested for illegal ties to Russia, and former Intel official knew Hunter Biden laptop was real, labeled it Russian disinformation anyway. Go check those out, as well as Gerald Flurry's book, America Under Attack. Thank you, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, and Richard Palmer. Thanks to Parker Campbell and Jesse Hester for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Winston Churchill. Truth is incontrovertible. Panic may resent it. Ignorance may deride it. Malice may distort it. But there it is. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world.
listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world. 